Hi there, this is Jaime Alejandro with the Arts Calling Podcast, the podcast where I interview hardworking independent creatives in the literary, visual, and performing arts. As I mentioned before, there won't be any shout-outs this holiday season, but please stay tuned for more of those coming in 2024. So let's get things rolling. Today, I am thrilled to be Arts Calling author Hilary Zaid. Here's a little bit about our guest. Hilary Zaid has been a Tennessee Williams Scholar at the Sewanee Writers Conference, a James D. Houston Fellow at the Community of Writers, and two-time attendee of Tin House Writers Workshop. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, Echo Tone, Day One, The Southwest Review, and The Utney Reader, and elsewhere. Long-listed for the 2018 Northern California Independent Booksellers Award for Fiction, her novel, Paper is White, is a 2018 Forward Indies Silver Medalist and the winner of the 2018 Independent Publishers Book Awards in LGBT plus fiction. Her novel, Forget I Told You This, from Zero Street Fiction, is the inaugural winner of the Barbara DeBernard Award. Hillary holds an A.B. in English from Harvard and a Ph.D. in English from the University of California, Berkeley. Hillary has mentored aspiring writers through AWP's Writer to Writer Mentor Program, the Golden Crown Literary Society, and as volunteer mentor and mentor coordinator of the College Essay Mentors in the Oakland Unified School District, an equity program serving high school seniors from underserved communities. Now, this is a remarkable conversation to end the year on. 2023 was personally a blast, and I can't thank you enough for listening. I can't thank my guests enough for stopping by, and I hope that we get to enjoy more episodes in 2024 together. So with that said, I will see you in the new year, and let's give Hillary a call. Good morning. Is anybody there? Yeah. Hey, hi, May. It's Hillary. Hi, Hillary. Good morning. How are you? Good. Hillary, thanks so much for your time. I know it's a little bit early over there in your neck of the woods. Where are you at these days? I'm in Oakland, California. And um, because it is daylight savings time, I've been up for hours. So oh, it's no. not even early at all. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time. I'm really excited to chat. We got a lot to cover, but maybe if we could talk about you for a little bit, just to, to get to know each other just a bit might be nice. Um, are, sure. you, are you from Oakland originally? Um, I'm actually a native Angelino. Um, oh. I guess not many people. People are native of Los Angeles, but I am. Um, I, I was born and grew up there um, and spent a little time on the East Coast before coming to um, the Bay Area for graduate school. And I've been here ever since. So since the early 90s. So it just made sense to you. It felt like a good place to be for you. Felt like a great place to be. And it's the place I've been longest of anywhere in my entire life. So um, it's definitely home at this point. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. So uh, let's talk about writing for a sec, because I have a feeling that you've been at this for a while. Is that right? It is right. Um, I was thinking about um, I, I, listening to some of your other shows and thinking about the origins of my life as a writer. And, um, you know, I was one of these kids who carried around a little notebook mm. and um I think for a lot of Gen Xers and especially women writers and especially lesbian writers, for some reason, um, Harriet the Spy is kind of an important <laughs> figure. And she was always, of course, she got in trouble for it, but she was always walking around with her little notebook. And um, so I had a little notebook and I, I seemed to be drawn to stories about um, a baby getting adopted by witches um, when I was seven years old. Uh, I think that's a statement about feeling like the writer in the family. But um, but my my parents were not keen on that idea. And I remember when I was seven saying, I want to be a writer. And my mother's instinctual response was, you can't do that. You'll starve. <laughs> I can't imagine having that kind of, well, maybe a little bit of that awareness so early on, but it seems like we just latch on to the feelings, right? Something that makes us feel so good, like we, whether we're bearing witness to something in our family or, or just the way that we see the world, 
we find an identifier so early on and we're like, this is me now. This is, this is who I am. And it seems like you had that clarity very early on. Yeah, but it, it's, a, you know, amazing how much parental discouragement can really cause you to veer away. Um, you know, I actually think of writing, like, I don't even think about it as having something to say, but as just having a congenital drive to make things with words. It's just like, it's the thing that feels right and the thing that feels good. And of course, reading as well is it's like, if I'm not reading something for a while, I'm a little off kilter. Like I definitely need to be reading something. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time to get back to writing creatively because um, I, I did write some in high school. I was on the school I was an editor on the school paper, but I, I always wrote um, satire because I just did not want to mm. write the facts. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much work to be responsible for them. I remember um, my ninth grade English teacher, Mr. Quiring, if you're out there, he assigned us to write uh, like a restaurant review kind of description thing. And it felt so burdensome that I just made up a restaurant. So it was entirely fictional and he loved it. He didn't know. And he was like, where is this place? Because I want to go eat there. Mm. Like, it's in, it's in your mind. <laughs> what Enjoy. beautiful validation to get. <laughs> even, even if, listen, I think a, a lot of us writers maybe just look at something and, and ultimately it becomes a case of, I misunderstood the assignment, but I got something better out of it. There's something way more affirming than than just, you know, filling out the sheets for for a grade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I understood the assignment. I was just cheating on it. Um. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we come at it from two ends of the spectrum, if that's the case, because I was always misunderstanding <laughs> the assignment. Uh, but let's let's talk about uh, the work that you've done while um, while outside of, of school, because you you obviously went to college for this or you studied, uh, you got your master's as well. And, and you went all the way to PhD. Is that correct? Well, so it actually, my academic career was a detour, um, because I mm. studied English language and literature, although my father really wanted me to study business. Mm. Um, but I studied poetry. I, it wasn't a creative writing degree. And then I went on to, to get a PhD also in an academic approach, um, studying the English romantic poets. So that was me not writing creatively. Um, and it was, it was a long detour. I mean, I have an absolutely crazy article in, um, romantic English romantic studies about a Wordsworth poem. And if you read it, you just think, wow, this is just utter nonsense. I mean, I took it seriously at the time, but you know, it's just a very different way of thinking and writing that can be full of long, long words. So it really wasn't until um, I had my second son. I, I had, I'd say when I fi finished graduate school, I didn't go into academia. Um, I actually went into web development somewhat accidentally. Um, and I had, I had this desire and some notes uh, to write a novel, and then I was just overwhelmed by work, and it wasn't until I had two very small children um, that this voice of my protagonist in my first novel, Papers White, woke up and just demanded to be heard, and um, and I, you know, took time that I was carving out from being with the kids to work on it, and that's how that novel came out at an excessive length um, <laughs> that eventually became a, a published novel. That's uh, beautiful to hear. And it's funny how that happens because you find yourself at the busiest time that you will ever have in your life, which is raising young children. And then the compulsion just arrives at the same time. And I'm, I'm curious of if you could share a bit more about the origins of that first work and, and really what led you to make that happen while you were experiencing those uh, very, I, I would call them intense times, as beautiful as they are, you know, raising uh, young children, the, those pivotal years, you know, can be very emotionally uh, consuming, right? Sure, sure. I mean, it's a combination of things. So 
you know, I had had this career in the late 90s in the burgeoning world of the internet. Um, and it was fun and it was, um, you know, remunerative. And so you have this identity in the world. And then when you have small children, that whole identity is stripped away. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't making money when the kids were small. And so in a way, um, it feels like you have less to lose by writing. Like you're not giving up that yeah. career and that identity. It's just, it's the place of having every part of your identity and even just your regular identity when you're with small kids all the time, it's all about them. So you're sort of stripped back to this very um, blank page place for yourself. And that really allowed me to do that. And so I think there was a sense of self that just wanted to come in and fill that gap in a way that didn't involve, you know, the kind of risks that my parents were so, you know, concerned about me taking because I'd already given some of those things up. Um, so that was a part of it. And uh, I do remember specifically I had taken the kids to this water park and I went through the tunnel slide, like you get in and you go through a tunnel and you shoot out. And it was probably one of the first times in several years that I didn't have a young person attached to my body. <laughs> and it was at, it was right after that, that this the voice woke up. So I think there was just something about that, like kind of reemerging as an individual person, even though, of course, um, in my daily life, I was... Um, immersed with them but I also think the kind of things that you do with young children there's so much repetition right so it's almost it's almost like like everything's happening but also like everything's just happening over and over again in almost a meditative way <laughs> yeah there's a freedom in the repetition right uh, as you would do any task from you know from work or whatever if you if you have some kind of repetitive uh, job that allows a certain part of your mind to be liberated. And then on top of that, you, your inhibitions are down kind of, and it just allows you to move on uh, to something that is more honest uh, from yourself, uh, I guess, to come yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. looking at the subject matter of your first novel versus what you're presenting now, your latest work, which is, um, you know, just a wonderful read so far. Can you share a bit about those contrasts of, of, what happened in the first novel? What kind of learning experiences you had and what allowed you to catapult into the next work? Or if there was some time in between, if you could give us a sense of that, mm -hmm. that timeline of discovery from one book to the next. Sure. So the first novel, Paper is White, is um, it's a contemporary novel set in the Bay Area in the late 90s. And it concerns a young woman um, who... Uh, decides to get married to her female partner and it that decision because marriage was not legal for them raises all these questions if you if you can't have a legal recognized marriage what what does the marriage entail and um Ellen is um, simultaneously a recorder of the history of the Holocaust she's an oral historian and so you know questions about storytelling and history and what is made public and what is private are um, are high in her consciousness because you know for many survivors of the Holocaust a way that they survived was just not to talk about it and then as they got later in their lives they had often a moment of realization like I need to tell this story now um, so those two things overlap for her in this quest to uh, figure out, you know, w what will her, what, what will be required of her. And also it's a time when, you know, people were not as open about their, um, their identity. Um, and so like the people that she works with, the elderly people, she's not out to them because she feels that that would be shocking to them and disruptive of her work with them. So she's really um, trying to figure out how she can 
do something like get married and also navigate this space of like privacy and secrecy. Um, and it, it, her quest is complicated by the fact that she had a very close relationship with her grandmother who died without knowing mm. that she was gay. Um, so, I mean, I think that in, in certain ways it may seem that the next novel, um, forget I told you this, which is, also said in the Bay Area, but is about an artist at midlife who uh, finds herself both desiring to be uh, an artist in residence at the world's largest social media company and drawn into a plot against the world's largest social media company in many ways uh, um, uh, addresses the same concerns about uh, the wish to be seen and also the wish for privacy and the face of in in Amy's case, uh, data surveillance and and uh, big data. Um, so I think in some ways, like they maybe feel like very different books. Um, and I think Ellen and Amy are very different characters. Um, but in some ways, I'm sort of working the same bone, which is this question about uh, public and private identities. Yeah, and it's a an incredibly important question, especially considering our social media climate. And mm-hmm. I feel like I have this conversation every day with myself, with my wife, with my friends about how much is too much? How much of ourselves are we giving yeah. to these platforms that are taking over our lives, speaking of Google and other such entities? But can you tell me a bit about Amy Black, who's the protagonist of your latest work and, and how she comes into the world? How do you flesh her out into the person that she became in the manuscript? Well, um, it's a great question. And I feel like um, it, it will all sound. I love, I, I, I love actually, that. Like uh, <laughs> I, got, I just got to preface this. Like when somebody goes, woo, that's kind of my favorite area, but it's a challenge <laughs> to try to articulate that. So I'll let you do the hard part. <laughs> sure. Sure. So Amy, I mean, you asked about the gap between the novels and I actually, began forget I told you this during the um, the attempt to get uh, papers white published and I think it's no coincidence that Amy is a frustrated artist who feels like she might not ever get to be an artist in the world right so part of her desire is to be seen as an artist to ply her trade as an artist um, and her art is very antithetical to uh, the world of social media and big data because she loves uh, the art of the medieval manuscript and she wants to write love letters in this kind of style. Um, So not super contemporary work (laughs) and not an obvious fit for the world that we live in. Um, So, you know, feeling my own frustrations about the process of publication, and let's just say it's a bad business. Writing is good, but the, the business of writing, it just can be so hard. Um, so, you know, there's some of my own frustrations packed into that. Um, I, I do recall that I had this little notebook, another notebook that I was, because <laughs> I took I took the Tin House workshop with Jess Walter, who's just a lovely and generous writer. Um, and he advised carrying around a notebook. So for a while, I was just jotting down ideas in this little notebook that, of course, when I started to write, I never looked at it ever again. Um, But I think it was like a space where some version of Amy came to live. But then, like, I'm very much um, like a uh, by the light of the headlights in the fog kind of a writer because I really enjoy the process of discovery. And so I learn things about a character as I'm writing a scene. I I think that for me, like if I had it all plotted out, there would be no joy, sort of like, uh, you know, writing a restaurant review of a real restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) It would all be predetermined. And and that's part of the writing process that I love so much is kind of seeing the the bottom drop out, like you're in a scene and then suddenly there's like a place of discovery. And I think some of the best things about, for me about my writing come that way. And I, I feel like it's an extended dream. Um, and Mm. I'm sort of like, when I read back the novel, I was really pleased that things that come up in the beginning, like it all 
gets used. I, for me, that's really important mm-hmm. not to have extraneous pieces, but like everything that happens gets used and it comes back and it all comes together. And it's amazing to me that that happens in large part through the unconscious process of creativity. I, I absolutely adore that because one of the surprising things is as you read the work and obviously you've gone back and you've polished and you've done this sort of thing, but the mystery feels very alive, very much in motion. And, and there's a confidence there to what is unfolding, even though it's keeping us on the edge of our seats. So it's not like we're, you know, uh, just kind of meandering through a story. We're actually moving along with muscle toward a resolution. And that's something that I really enjoyed about the the work. But I wanted to ask you about the process of excising things and shaping things into yeah. what, what eventually they became mm-hmm. in your novel. But you mentioned in another podcast that you, you write a lot. You overwrite maybe mm-hmm. sometimes. Is that yeah. accurate? Or could you tell me how that plays yeah. into your editing process? Sure. Sure. Well, so I mean, for me, I have to love editing and I do enjoy it. And so that really helps. But my first novel, Papers White, was it was like 379,000 words mm. that we we know unless we're like George R. R. Martin, that's an unpublishable <laughs> link. Yeah. Um, and it was hard the first time to to make the cuts because at that length, you have to cut out characters. You have to cut out plot lines. It's not just like, oh, let's take out all the adjectives. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more. Um, I joked to somebody recently because I, I have dogs and I love dogs. And I, I said, you know, I always am putting dogs in and then having to take them out. Um, with Forget I Told You This, I think I clocked in around 179,000 words. And I was really trying to keep it much shorter, like under a hundred. And as I blew past that word count, I just had to tell myself, don't worry about it. Just keep going until you get to the end and then you'll cut. And honestly, most of the cutting, so it's around 90,000 now. So, you know, it's cutting half. Um, Most of that cut was just painless. I mean, it's not, it takes multiple rounds, but it just wasn't that hard. it wasn't anywhere near as hard as the first book. Of course, what's left of the first book is one quarter of what I started with. And I'm working on a project now and I'm really trying to keep it under a hundred thousand. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But I think this kind of ties into what you're saying of the extended dream, which is a lovely phrase and I'm going to steal and use for as long as, as I live, because it does feel like you have to just go into the dirt and keep sifting and sifting. And before you know it, you have, another, you know, tens of thousands of pages. But in your digressions, did you find something that was really, really pivotal to the character, to Amy in particular, in in all of the stuff that you took out? Was there something that was really pivotal that maybe you had to find a way back in, in some other form? Mm. Like if there's an example Um, of that. I would say no. I don't think Mm. anything really essential came out. Um, and you said in my digressions, I mean, they're all digressions, right? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I remember when I was in high school, I, my my senior English teacher, he has said, you have a Jamesian period, which just means like you write incredibly long sentences with lots of relative clauses and parentheticals and things. I'd say for, for this particular book, it they were more... Um, uh, I mean, I, it's hard to even, there's one particular edit that was challenging and it was significant, but I would say all the other, the, you know, the major cuts, they were just elaborations more than essential things. Like I did lose a dog. I am sorry Mm. to say the new Mm. project has a dog and the dog is essential and the dog will stay. Mm. (laughs) Um, but, but when I, when I first, I worked with, um, zero street, Fiction, which is a new imprint of the University of Nebraska Press. Um, it was created to give a, a trade audience um, for LGBTQ plus projects, writers. Um, and this is the inaugural title in the series. And so when it was selected, my editor, Timothy Schaffert, said, we love the book and we just have some minor edits. And, you know, so we went through the process of contracting and then and then I had my editorial meeting with Timothy and he said, there's just this one thing. And then he named the um, pivotal uh, 
element of the plot that motivated Amy to make her big decision. And Mm -hmm. he said, I think this just is extraneous and you don't need it. And I had this panic, like, you know, how am I going to get her to decide and do what she needs to do without this thing? And it's so important. And he and I went around, um, batting around some ideas and we exchanged some emails that weekend and he was like you could have an assassin and you there could be and it was like it was getting more outlandish by the second and then it didn't take more than like a few days before I realized like oh I can cut this out and I can cut all evidence of this out and make her motivation much more intrinsic to her character and it's better and I just at this point, I don't miss it, but that was that was a plot line that had to be torn out. Yeah, and it, it always comes down to those difficult decisions that you feel are illuminating on the character, but but really it takes an outside perspective to say, think about it a different way, make it clearer or cleaner, perhaps. Uh, yeah, it yeah. feels like that's what happened. Yes, absolutely. And I have to say, I know it can be hard for writers to work with editors, and I've done plenty of freelance editing and it's hard to hear things don't work but there is such a pleasure in working with a good editor Mm. who really understands your vision for something and just helps to make it better and if writers out there take advantage of the opportunity to work with a good editor um, of you know whoever's publishing you and just really try to listen to them because it can be su- such a nice work of collaboration. And I would say I had that experience too, working with Annalena Phillips-Bell at Ecotone on a piece that they published. Just that sense of we're working together and we're making this its best incarnation mm-hmm. rather than like, these are my words and I must clutch them until yeah. my fingers curve into talent. But, you know, having cut so much myself in advance, I think it's good preparation for being a little less uh, precious and um, having a little bit of thicker skin. And you just realize like, you know what, this writing is good, but that is not the criterion for keeping it. Um, it's, it, it has to be good and it has to also work with this project. And, and I think because like every time we write, at least for me, like if, and you write something good, you feel like, oh my God, I don't know if this will ever happen again. I have to hold on to this, but mm-hmm. you really have to trust that it will happen again. And then if you did it once, you'll do it again. And it's really okay. And uh, I like to, to share this little story about, um, you know, I went to the Tin House Writers Workshop, Workshop and the Swanee Writers Workshop with Forget I Told You This. And, you know, you come back from a writer's workshop with like a stack of copies of your manuscript with everybody's comments on it. And, you know, like you can't write a manuscript by popular demand. You find the people whose voices resonate for you. And, and but it's like, well, what do I do with all this? And I, um, I sheet mulched the backyard with the manuscripts. Um, and it felt like it's a good metaphor because you have to be able to let go of things um, in order to create your work. And so I feel that way about editing. Like it can be hard, but like it's okay to let it go. And it, it like you really, if you have a font of creativity in you, like you just have to trust that it really is there and it's not going to vanish away. Mm-hmm. Trust yourself and and love yourself enough to know that the, the compulsion won't go away. The drive to, to create something won't go away. And you don't have to hold on to this one in a in a precious manner. Um, and yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And I feel like I, I could ask you all kinds of questions about editing in particular because that collaboration is so vital. And, and I just think that we could have like a whole episode on that alone. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to ask yeah. you, <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, this thing that you spoke about in another podcast about sort of the generational responsibility um to to further artistic output um for a particular group of people and you didn't say that you know in in like specific words or anything like that this is just sort of my interpretation of maybe what you're saying and and perhaps you could sort of elaborate with me a little bit do we have to get some things out of our system as folks from an underrepresented community 
Um, or do we have to continue sharing stories of, of our origin? Um, I, mm. And I, I don't know if this makes sense exactly, but I, I just, you, you lightly mentioned this in another interview, and I'm wondering if, if you could help me kind of parse through this idea, mm. you know, of yourself as a, an, an LGBT person. Um, do you feel there's a responsibility there, or are you opening up the canvas a little bit more in, in your own way? How do you feel about that? Yeah, um, I wish I could um, go back and remember what I said and <laughs> what I was thinking. I mean, I think as um, as a queer writer, I feel like what's interesting to me is to be second wave or third wave in that. That's what it I was. feel like. It, okay. It's less interesting to me to tell the coming out stories that really were important to me when I was a young queer person but mm. like i feel like you know i don't it's such a weird thing right because yeah. like uh zero street fiction it's an lgbtq plus focus press and just came back from nebraska where we had a a panel talking about what that meant and it's not 100 percent clear what that means um or what the requirements are i feel like um for me having uh like what i think of and I think Garth Greenwell may use this phrase too, like a homonormative lens. Like for me, I take it very much for granted that say um, Amy Black is a lesbian and that, but that's not what the story's about. Um, and I think, you know, you also don't want to be like behind, behind walls where people feel like I can't re relate to this. And I don't think that's the experience people have of this book. Um, I actually did a, I did a reading um, and a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a professor uh, of cognitive science, and uh, he, I invited him to be my interlocutor, and he was, he, he was pretty tickled because he said he confessed that he'd always wanted to be like a radio show <laughs> host, um, and I said, you know, and of course he lives in Amherst, and I was like, and of course you'll want to invite like all the, your friends to this reading. Cause like, I don't live in Amherst. I don't know many <laughs> people there. And he was like, well, I don't know if I know people who are the audience for this book. And I think really what he was saying is I don't know a lot of lesbians. And I was like, Hmm, hmm well, I'm not, sh you know, you're, <laughs> you're an academic. Like I hope, you know, people who read and people who think about say issues like data privacy and issues uh, like, art and our endurance in the world through art and it was really interesting to me that um you know he said that at the outset and then he read the book and he just had a very different understanding because and i i, I think this is just like you know this is the lingering effects of prejudice and and i'm sure that you have experienced this too is that people think like oh if the character is a lesbian this is a quote-unquote lesbian novel and it belongs in a certain section and it's for certain people and it's like well i mean this is a novel i mean i would say it's literary fiction and that's probably the biggest delimiter of it of all right um with a with a kind of thriller edge um but like that is so much more central um that it's a, a novel that it's it's fast paced but it's a novel with a literary um a literary sensibility and an interest in the language and the style in which it's written and also in thinking about things and not just having characters like running from one thing to the next thing um so in a way it's like it's it's i don't want to say it's incidental that amy is a lesbian because i do think also there's like a queer sensibility and I think there's a very strong Jewish sensibility in this novel that you might not think of in that way either. Um, but I think, you know, we bring our frames of reference and hopefully um, allow those to breathe in works that um, feel like they're not just about one note, I right, guess. Right. And I think th at least in your setting up of this, this character and the situation, that was incredibly effective because when I read, you know, writing from a person of color or somebody who's, you know, Mexican-American like myself, that that's kind of like a, a a signifier, right, of kind of where they're at in their journey of, of exploration. And, and for me, this work was so effective at 
sharing this human being in their entirety and and not letting it be a statement about certain things, but but it allowed you to to really understand their humanity as they went into this other journey that was, you know, maybe not 100 percent related to to their identity. And I, I thought that was just a, a beautiful balance because this was a, a fully fleshed out human being that uh, I'm really enjoying their journey as they're as they're trying to uncover something that is really larger than themselves. And, and it gets uh, <laughs> definitely quite intense. But um, if we could talk for a minute about the technology aspect of it, because with your proximity where you live, I can imagine that it's it might be a big shadow looming over your neck of the woods. Is that kind of accurate to say, you know, when speaking of Silicon Valley and in a lot of these places? Well, it's interesting to be close to it. And also, as I said, I've worked in it, or at least adjacent to it. You know, um, I think that it would be easy to think that I'm a Luddite or something because I've written this novel that asks us to think about what does it mean that we, that we like, um, you know, give our data to these giant uh, technology companies and we don't really know what's going to happen with that information. And I personally think it's not the technology, right? The technology is cool. I'm talking to you on a computer. I have a little mini computer that fits in my pocket. And, you know, I've always been interested in the technology. And, like, as a grad student at Cal, UC Berkeley, I was teaching, you know, literature courses that involved hypertext modalities and, I think it's really fascinating and I think it can do a lot of good. And what is troubling is that we haven't decided as a society that we want to put safeguards in place or that we want to regulate it, in fact, at all. <laughs> um, and and so, and I think like we're seeing now, so, and I think like the world has felt safe enough to a lot of people that it's something we do without thinking and it's not our fault. Like, I don't feel like any individual person should be like wrapping themselves in tinfoil. Although like, maybe you want to use Mozilla Firefox and maybe you want to use DuckDuckGo, but I don't think it's anyone's fault for having like been carried along on this wave because how really can you live without being involved in technology at this point? But um, I do think it's become more apparent how, um, you know, how not thinking about these things has created issues. For example, as suddenly it appears that Elon Musk has the status of a major world political figure because he controls all these satellites um, that are instrumental in providing Ukraine with uh, Internet during a, a major war. Um, like nobody elected him to do that, but also nobody thought about like, oh, what happens when all of these things are in the hands of one individual and we come to depend so heavily on them? Mm. Um, I And I think there's lots of things like that. I mean, yeah. if you want to be afraid, like look at Palantir, which, you know, it's kind of... Um, Q, so in my novel, Q is the big social me uh, media company. And, and thank you, Elon, for changing Twitter to X because it really is a good fit. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, Palantir is this, uh, it's the biggest of the big data companies with predictive, trying to use uh, data predictively um, for all kinds of things, including it, his product. So it's Peter Thiel, who is the, He's a bad gay. Um, you know, he was one of the founders of um, PayPal, and he's just a real right-wing conservative. But Palantir is, like, scraping up all the data, and police um, police departments use it, for example, to determine patterns of gang affiliation. Mm. Well, they're just not always right, you know. Yeah. Um, these predictions, and they have powerful effects on people's lives. You hear about... Um, you know, facial recognition technology, it's pretty crazy. Um, and it is really bad with people of color. Um, and Kashmir Hill just released a book all about uh, Clearview AI. That's also used by police departments. Um, predictive technology is used um, in order, and it's being sued by the ACLU 
for um, you know predicting and recommending uh, paroles. And so, I mean, we're almost like in the world of uh, future crime, right? Like, because we're not statistical things, we're human beings. <laughs> so um, anyways, and, and now, of course, after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision, things that we say on social media, like communications that we make electronically have compromised people who are talking about um, you know, plan B pills in states where abortion is now illegal. Like it, it's crazy. So I think like, but I started writing this book in the Obama era and it might've seemed like a tinfoil hat preoccupation, but you know, things change quickly. And I think then you start, not that it wasn't a problem before, but you understand in a different way, like, Oh, all this stuff it's out there and you can't, suck it back in and who as Shoshana Zuboff has written really extensively um, and thoughtfully about this uh, topic, who decides who decides because her argument is that things that um, data acquisitions companies know about us will be used and are being used to shape our behavior without our knowledge or consent. Um, so it is. And she's, she wrote the book on it, but she also wrote many shorter articles that you can read so you don't have to read the 1,000-page book. Yeah, certainly worth sure. a look. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I'm curious of what your thoughts are, given that you, uh, I believe you do uh, the equity program with high school seniors, right? So you work with oh, folks yeah. from underserved communities, which is an amazing thing that yeah. you're doing. And uh, I'm so grateful that there's folks like you doing that that kind of work. But if you could give me a, a sense of perspective of what the younger generation feels about technology, because I, I get concerned as a parent and I'm curious of yeah. what that lens is. You know, how do they perceive the the technology that surrounds them that is part of who they are? But do you believe that they have a social responsibility or that they understand that there is a, a need to be more careful on the Internet just to get a, a that perspective, if if you can tell what that is? Well, well, I would like qualify this by saying like when I'm working with youth who are, you know, in need of support, I work with them on their college essays. And that's mm. so that's the equity piece is tra trying to uh, trying to give kids who don't have, you know, a ten thousand, forty thousand uh, dollar college counselor, the support of somebody like myself or one of our mentors is an editor from Mother Jones. Like we have really smart people who I think in many cases are better at working on essays and personal statements than some of those highly paid folks. So that's not really a conversation that I have with those students. I mean, I'm a parent of a 19-year-old and a 22-year-old. Um, so I have a little bit of a glimpse through their experiences and I mean, my kids have never been really into social media. I know the New York Times did a little piece not that long ago about a group of kids who call themselves neo-Luddites. And, um, you know, I think that I think that for kids, they can realize that it feels bad and it makes them feel bad um, when they're seeing their lives through these social media lenses. But I also think like a lot of kids spend a whole lot of time on platforms like TikTok. And I mean, gosh, even the United States government is concerned about TikTok. Um, it's, it's, it's located, its servers are located in China, um, which is the most advanced surveillance society in the world. Um, there, I mean, so, and, and like, I mean, the word genocide has come up a lot lately, and I don't want to go there, except to say that the Uyghurs, the Muslim Uyghurs in China are like social surveillance and DNA technology and facial recognition and voice recognition. Like those technologies are being used to um, to contain those people in very extraordinary ways. And um, so I think like, it's concerning to think about the kinds of influence that can come through these platforms. And I think, you know, lately in the wake of um, the crisis in the Middle East, which is 
so historied and complex. Like we're seeing social media is this just like um, uh, soapbox of very loud um, partisan extreme opinions that, you know, they don't, I mean, I hate to say it, but they don't actually change what happens in the world, but they do create like intense animosities between people in a way, in, in a way that's deeply disturbing. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's Gen Z and what, what is comes after them? Uh, I Gen believe it's Alpha. A? Is it Alpha? Okay. <laughs> I believe <wild>. so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I don't even know how those kids perceive it, but I think, I think we as adults know that it, just the fact of using these technologies can be harmful to young people. And I, I feel grateful in a way that I grew up without it. Um, because I think it puts so much pressure on kids. So, you know, what, it, and also it gives them access to t completely different worlds, um, and, and makes them less alone. So, Again, I just think like, you know, we have to decide how we want this all to fit into our lives. And I don't have easy answers. And I hope I didn't write a novel that suggests there's an easy answer. I hope I wrote a novel that asks questions because I think that's the best thing we can do is to ask questions and, um, and to have conversations and to think about things instead of to be like preached to. I Which couldn't is boring. Agree more. Yeah. <laughs> boring. I could not agree more. But uh, I have a couple more questions here to be mindful of your time. But this has been such a pleasure. And I wanted to ask you, as you completed Forget I Told You This, now that it's going out into the world, what are the thoughts that you're left with uh, personally, you know, uh, as just a human being in the world who's trying to improve on their craft? Uh, what, what are the feelings that you're left with or questions? personal questions um, once you completed this um, work? Well, um, you know, one of the questions I had, of course, is what will I do next, especially in the time before this novel found a publisher, because you never want to just be trying to sell a book. It's so hard. Um, and it's important to remember that you're a creative person. I think for me, um, the what next question is also a question of how will I do something different? Because I'm just not interested in writing the same book over and over. Um, and, at, you know, as I was reading the galleys, I was noticing like ways in which I might use the same kind of a syntax. Um, and I, you know, and that strikes me. And I have thought like, I don't want to, I want to break from that. I want to break from those patterns um, and do again, do something that's new. Um, so in my current work, I'm working in a third-person point of view instead of a first. I'm doing these short little chapters. I just want to keep doing things that are different and challenging. And as a book goes out, I think, like, how lucky to be able to have a book that goes out because, gosh, there are so many talented writers who just don't have that opportunity, and I'm just so grateful that I can do that. And I'm aware, too, you know, as you have a book come out, it's so much work to try to publicize it. And even with a press that has a publicity department, you know, they don't have oodles and oodles of money, like a big five kind of publisher, but I just am mindful of, you know, even amongst some of the frustration where you feel like I need to be running around with a sandwich board. It has my book cover on it. I'm just mindful of experiences like the one you and I are having now that, having a book out there allows you to make individual connections with people. And that that is a really powerful thing. Even if it's not, you know, a hundred thousand people, even if it's just one person at a time, it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful experience to be able to have, to have that experience. Um, and I want to say too, I'm just quelling here. just like <laughs> gushing with pride. So, um, my son, who's this 19-year-old college sophomore, um, turned out to be my cover designer. And oh. so there's an extra layer of tremendous pride that I see, oh that I feel when I see, like when the cover gets used in a, in a review, I just feel like overflowing. <laughs> and what a fantastic experience it was 
to work with him creatively. So, I mean, that's, that's uh case study <laughs> one of the power of connection. Um, yeah. But just having come from Nebraska too, and having met my, my publisher's team, like, it's just, it's great. It's great to be able to, you know, to connect with people. And then of course, when I hear from people and they say that they love the book and, you know, somebody said she just visited her son who was in his freshman year of college. And she was reading this passage in the novel where Amy compares the, the time of being a parent with a child at home to a book of hours and just mm. lists all the hours. Um, and she said she just cried on the plane. <laughs> and I think what a privilege to be able to move people. I mean, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Oh my goodness. That, you know, I was going to ask you a whole bunch of stuff, but that is a beautiful note to end on because you've encapsulated everything that is good about the work that you're doing. And I strongly urge folks to check out this work. Uh, Forget I Told You This is an awesome, unique techno thriller. And uh, you do have a, a midlife character who is really like checking all the boxes, but also breaking the boxes and, and doing doing her own thing. And it's it's such a delight to read. And I just can't wait to get to the end because this is going to be such a such a blast to get through the uh, the next uh, couple pages here. But I can't thank you enough for your time, Hillary. This has been uh, such a blast. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So I hope that we get to connect down the road because uh, you. I hope so, too. Yeah. And I'm I'm really appreciative of the work that you do and your incredible thoughtfulness and your artistic sensibility because you come to this as an artist yourself. And it, it really shows in the way that you approach writers and you approach their work. And I'm, I'm really thankful. Oh, thank you so much. That means the world. But I will let you enjoy your Sunday. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful time. So let's talk real soon. OK, let me know when the next okay. one's around and I'll be here for All you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jaime. So nice to meet you. Wonderful to meet you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.